What Donald Trump did, he exposed to a greater degree the ugliness, the corruption, the cheap glamour, the propagation of falsehoods, all of the things that are already in our politics. And he like souped them up and accelerated them and let the workings be known. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Joe Biden is now the 46th president of the United States, and Donald Trump becomes a figure in history. But where and how exactly to consider Trump's legacy and impact? To talk about this, we're joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She is the author of the new book, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me on. Our interview airs an hour after the end of Donald Trump's presidency. Many people are still in shock after the events of January 6th with the uh, assault on the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters. Can you put that attack on our Capitol into perspective? What did you as a historian of authoritarianism see going on that day? Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't at all surprised um, at what happened because um, in a way this was a logical outcome of how authoritarian leaders act when their power is threatened. And it, it was also a logical outcome of all the other things he'd been doing since November, you know, 4th when he lost the election and had tried, you know, he explored a military intervention and then General Milley shut that down. And then he tried all the, you know, drawn out electoral manipulation that didn't work. So what did he have left is, is uh, you know, these kind of paramilitary as an extremists who it turns out some of them are, you know, people inside our state institutions. And the, and the reason I wasn't surprised is that men like Donald Trump, they, they see um, leaving power as a kind of psychological annihilation. They can't imagine life not um, controlling people and having access to resources and enrichment. So they get very desperate and they do um, last ditch, you know, kind of desperate measures. How did you think the final act would go for Trump? Uh, you saw what he was tweeting, you saw what he was threatening, and many people, of course, dismissed this as just so much kind of jaw-flapping of a guy who they'd heard doing that kind of thing for four years. Did you take him more seriously, knowing what you know about how other strong men kind of uh, orchestrate or choreograph their final act? I did, and... You know, I had to turn in the book. So the book Strongman is from Mussolini and up to Trump. And Trump is it's the first book to see Trump in historical perspective of a century of authoritarianism. So I had to turn it in in the summer. So I didn't know, you know, how the election would go. But the last things I wrote about him were that, you know, we should never underestimate uh, his willingness to stay in office and that he wouldn't go quietly. I, of course, I couldn't know what the exact content of the, of the you know, desperate thing he did on January 6th would be, but I had a feeling that he would, you know, uh, kind of say that he'd won the election because this was not new. 
a lot of the things that went on were not new. I mean, he he started with the election is rigged stuff in 2016 in case he lost to Hillary Clinton. And so this has been accelerated, um, as has, you know, his courting uh, of these extremists and militia groups. I mean, he kind of played them like a violin and he made them feel very special and valued uh, for four years. And we really will have to you know, I think it's been a wake up call, um, but he, if you look at the way he spoke to them and how he, he really elevated them. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the neo-Nazis who were in Charlottesville in 2017 never expected to be called, you know, very fine people by the president of the United States. And you really can't overstate what, you know, having a presidential imprimatur to these thugs these extremists, these subversives, what does that mean? So none of this was uh, out of the realm of possibility. So you've written about and we've talked about um, the ways that Trump is not new, the way he has followed an authoritarian playbook. But what have you seen transpire where Trump really is breaking new ground, but because we know that every strong man essentially writes a new chapter in the authoritarian playbook. What new chapter do you think that Trump wrote? That, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, he's a 21st century strong man, so he, um, he mixes, and if we just take his propagandistic abilities, because that is, that is one of his greatest skills, his showman, uh, manipulator um, kind of skills that he had from coming uh, from the realm of, you know, marketing and entertainment television. So some of those things are the same as 100 years ago. And it was kind of shocking to see how things about like personality cults, they haven't changed the rules of personality cults. But of course, you have digital media today. And the pace of social media soups up all of the processes that make propaganda work because propaganda works through repetition and through saturation. So, you know, from, from the time he uh, had his 2016 campaign, he kind of, uh, he had Brad Parscale approached it as a kind of e-commerce model where they had something like 50, 60 million individual Facebook ads, just floods and floods of ads. And the Hillary Clinton campaign had only 65,000. So Trump campaign was playing a totally different game. And the same with Twitter, the volume and the reach of his Twitter messages, sometimes over a hundred a day. So, so this, this was new um, and, and, and not, um, they're, they're all, all autocrats use social media um, well, but often it's been more that they try and suppress it. Trump really, I think he's been the most successful in flooding the media space with uh, hammering home the same messages over and over again. So uh, there are many Trump wannabes waiting in the wings. We know uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley uh, demonstrated that on the floor of the Senate when they essentially parroted the lies of the rioters by questioning the legitimacy of the election. What will they need to do to bring it home the way Trump does? Or is Trump just a singular character in the way, as you said, he's such a showman? In some ways, he's, he's quite singular. Um, he's not singular in history because one of the things I, I discovered um, 
so I knew Mussolini had been a journalist, but I didn't realize that so many of these strongmen who have success came from a background in mass communications. And they were very, very skilled in um, communicating with people and they knew how to communicate in original ways. So you had that with Hitler too, with the radio and what he did with his voice and Berlusconi and Mobutu and the Congo was a journalist. So Trump had, he came in already having mastered um, misinformation and connecting emotionally with people. That's his whole thing. So the people you mentioned, Holly and Cruz, they don't really have that ability. Um, they don't have this kind of charisma. Now, I personally don't think Trump is charismatic, but others do, and that's what matters. The other thing is he has a kind of gravitas, and, and I talk a lot in my book about the importance of the physical body. You know, look at Putin, who's stripping off his shirt. In fact, today he just was trying to distract from his arrest of the dissident Navalny by going ice dipping, you know, with a you know, bare chest. Trump doesn't strip his shirt off, but he has this massive body and he's like a protector and defender of the nation. And, and there's where his age can actually work for him because he, he, he has this like craggy atmosphere, you know, around him, a craggy kind of exuberance in a way. So they don't have that. Um, that doesn't mean somebody else can't come along and, and be extremely dynamic. And though we don't, I don't know who that might be. Um, some people mentioned Dan Crenshaw. He has an eye patch. He can be kind of, it, it's important to be a bit of a rogue, a bit of a risk taker. Um, I think Holly and Cruz are quite establishment and they are a little bit too um, establishment boys trying to make themselves into populace. So that doesn't really fly. You write that strong men have used masculinity as a tool of political legitimacy. Um, how so? How is machismo and virility uh, a part of this whole authoritarian shtick for Trump and for others? So what I wanted to do in the book was to isolate these kind of tools of rule that have been used over 100 years and see how they interact. And this is the key thing. So it's uh, propaganda, machismo, I call it virility, um, corruption, the myth of national greatness and violence. So, and, and I define a strongman as somebody who's not only an authoritarian, but somebody who uses machismo to connect with his followers, connect, it's very important in his self-presentation and also with um, other foreign leaders. And, and so machismo, it's like a glue in a way, because for example, how does it connect with corruption? Well, he becomes uh, the man who glamorizes lawlessness. He's the man who, you know, he's a man of the people, he can speak a regular language, but he's a man above all other men who gets away with things that other men don't. And that's been very important for Trump's persona his whole life, that he gets away with things, that he also has women others can't have. So he possesses like luxury, but he's also a rogue who somehow gets away with all these transgressions. And he took that persona and brought it into politics with totally devastating results. But the machismo there, it's like the outlaw. And in fact, one of the things I ran home to do an op-ed when he said I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue 
and not lose any followers. Because like, who does that as a political candidate? Nobody does that. I mean, Duterte does it and Bolsonaro does it, but um, but this is the wild, it's like the old West, you know, he could shoot, he's gonna have a gunslinging battle. So he was already styling himself as this kind of macho, reckless figure. And it, uh, that was, it was game over, to be honest, um, when the GOP gave him the nomination having him having done that and then being rewarded with the nomination. I think, you know, one of the most shocking things right uh, at this moment is the spell that Trump seems to have over his followers. So you have the riot on the Capitol, uh, the threat to the lives of the lawmaker. And then, of course, hours after the uh, Capitol is breached, you know, over 140 Congress people in both the House and the Senate vote to uh, to essentially, uh, you know, amplify what Trump and the rioters were saying that the election was a fraud. So this is how Trump lives on even after Trump himself has been vanquished. So talk about what do you see going forward, uh, even with Trump out of the way, what will become of Trumpism and, and how is it that this spell lingers? Those are excellent questions. And, um, you have for the for the part about grassroots followers, uh, the personality cult stuff is really important because once they bond to the person of the leader, it's very very hard to break that bond. And we've seen that nothing he does or says is 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 going to drive them away because they have a frame for interpreting everything. But the part of the um, personality cult is that the leader has to be a victim. He takes the hits of all the enemies, right? So he represents the nation, but he actually embodies the nation. So he becomes the target of, you know, in every country it's been different in, in our place and time, it's the deep state and all the other, you know, Robert Mueller and all the other people who've come along being his enemies. And this victim cult is absolutely key because followers feel protective of the leader. So it's not just that they want to obey him and he's a big, strong man. They actually make themselves vulnerable with these victimhood things. And Erdogan does it, and Berlusconi did it, Mussolini did it, and Hitler for sure. And so people want to rescue them. And I think January 6th is also about this. It was, you know, Trump was robbed of something that was rightfully his. Trump was the victim. And they were intervening in this violent fashion to interrupt this you know, process of him being robbed of the presidency. So that victim complex is going to continue after he leaves because he's leaving, um, he's leaving without still being robbed of what, he shouldn't be leaving at all in their minds, basically. As for the elites, the lawmakers or lawbreakers, as I'm calling them now, who who voted, you know, they wouldn't, they didn't want to impeach him, and those Republicans who did vote to impeach him had to buy body armor because they bring threatened. Here we have another kind of dynamic straight out of authoritarianism is you know the the loyalty quotient around the leader, and how Trump was able to threaten and buy out these people. Um, and had a real like, you know, leader cult where the party in, to an astonishing degree just fell into line. 
And it, in his, if you put it in historical perspective, his achievement is even greater because somebody like Mussolini or Berlusconi, who's a good example, because he didn't wreck democracy, they founded their own parties. And so it makes a little more sense that they were always the top dog. But here's Trump who, who used to vote Democrat sometimes. And here he comes from outside to the grand old party. We only have two and that's a very big and old one. And within four years, he makes it his own tool, his personal tool. And so they do the things that all these parties do. His personal enemies become their enemies and the whole resources and time of the party become hijacked to fighting his enemies and smearing his enemies and defending him from prosecution and impeachment. And so, so that, those dynamics, which are not typical of democracies, have, have lasted till the bitter end, even till now, even after January 6th. So that's another big success of Trump, but it's not a success that could be seen in the lens of democracy. From your study of other strong men, what snaps the spell? What makes it so that the followers of these strong men, the followers of Donald Trump, realize that they've been played, that people have died from the pandemic that he said was a hoax, that uh, there was no rescue, that there was only him and what he got out of it? Well, sadly, um, and these are not analogous situations because these were dictatorships where there wasn't ever any um, you know, opposition press, right? We had the free press the whole time and the opposition. But in, in like in for the fascist dictators, the sadly, the only thing that woke people up was being bombed by the allies. So you have to have an experience of direct physical harm and ruin. And so this makes the achievement well, of Trump. This isn't, isn't COVID. Yes, that? I was just going to say. So it's absolutely extraordinary that he hasn't lost his followers because of COVID, which has brought exactly mass death in a very different way than being bombed by the allies, but mass death. So here we have the uh, advantage of social media. He's, it's easier to manipulate people now because again, he did not control, he did, there was no state media and he still managed with the help of Fox and all the other partners he had to pull off this, um, this fiction about COVID that was very carefully planned and very and strung out in a very intelligent way so that even when people, uh, he, I mean, what better proof of his power than to, for him to lure people uh, to rallies um, and let, get them to put their lives at risk for his glory going to these rallies without masks? I mean, this is such a big ego boost and he will continue to have some kind of rallies, I predict, because um, he can't, that's, he needs that adulation. So that's very, very sad that people and, and very terrifying about the power of media today, um, because that in the past is the main thing that has set people against uh, dictators, um, old school dictators, the same with Mobutu, where it was there, it was grinding poverty and corruption, um, Mobutu in the Congo. So this is a very interesting case study that even COVID, he did lose the election, some voters, you know, turned on him, but he actually got more votes in 2020. So this is a very sobering story.
Do you think there's room in the Republican Party for uh, Trump and for never Trumpers or people who are not for Trump but are Republicans? Or will the party simply have to split apart? And we're going to be talking about that at greater length with uh, another guest on this hour, uh, Stuart Stevens. But I'm curious your take on it. You know, I've been going uh, over my articles I wrote for CNN and The Atlantic before the inauguration, just to see like what I had thought. Um, and one of the first article I did for The Atlantic in August 2016 about Trump and Mussolini. And I concluded at the end saying that the liberal, which was really a conservative party, which had been the dominant party in Italy since unification, and they backed Mussolini, they invited Mussolini in, they were like the GOP. They ended up ruined and just totally irrelevant after Mussolini left. So I, I end the piece saying of all the lessons, you know, Mussolini's Italy can give the GOP, this might be the best or all the warnings, this might be the best one, because it's very hard to back somebody like a Trump and come through unscathed. So there is no place for old fashioned conservatives right now in the Republican Party. And in fact, there's um, comparative politics studies have been coming out that that place, they look at the GOP in a global perspective and where does it line up? It doesn't line up with conservative parties. It lines up with far right parties. So one of the things I've been saying in interviews, it's a very hard truth. We've got two parties and one of them is a far right party which has an authoritarian lawless political culture right now. What do you do? And how do you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't. I don't have a full answer, but uh, clearly, I think there will be some kind of uh, break within the party, because not all of these never Trumpers want to join the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party, you know, may become more progressive, um, and that's just not where they want to go. So, but the 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 real answer to the question is about how to protect democracy. Um, there and, and it's not just the Republican Party, it's the voters. Many voters are still, you know, they, they don't think that Trump did anything so wrong on January 6th. And they also approve of his leadership style. Um, and there's always uh, uh, the part of the population that can be uh, kind of activated for authoritarian reasons. That's one of the lessons of my book. It happens over and over again. And it's our turn. So... So protecting our democracy and trying to build bridges and, um, and kind of um, rein in this, this expanding um, anti-democratic culture of the GOP and trying to recuperate some kind of middle um, after these years of intense polarizing rhetoric is going to be very important in the next years. We, of course, know the names of the autocrats, the famous autocrats, Mussolini, Hitler, Pinochet, and others. We tend not to know the names of the people who immediately follow them, the Joe Bidens. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens 
to the Joe Bidens. And of course, this is a way of asking, what do you think will happen to Joe Biden following this would-be autocrat? Well, Joe Biden's coming in, uh, and this is partly just what Trump wanted, to a triple crisis. He's coming into, you know, this just tragic levels of uh, death and sickness from coronavirus and tragic levels of economic misery. Um, so many people are going to, you know, lose their homes and be evicted and all the things we know about that. And then this record levels of disaffection and polarization and this extremism. So, you know, the, one of the best things he, he had, he can do is to even make, is to cer certainly uh, focus on the first two. Like you can't have, you can't have the, the, the stability you need to start um, bringing back people from the extremist edge if you don't alleviate, you know, sickness and um, some, and have economic relief. So it's going to be so I, I see the first half of his presidency as as being caught up in crisis management. Um, and again, some of that Trump really wanted to sabotage his um, his administration. So that's part of why he didn't. There were many reasons he didn't address coronavirus, but that's clearly one of them. And creating you know fires for in, in foreign policy issues. He's been trying to saddle him. Uh, with uh, things that will defeat him to create more appetite in the public for, uh, quote, competent law and order authoritarian governance like his, right? Somebody, maybe not him, but somebody in his orbit. Do you think that there is any opportunity presented by kind of the unmasking of this extreme right wing, this violent you know, white supremacist organizations. Uh, can there be some good that comes of that politically? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I, I do think so. And one of the reason people like Mitch McConnell, as we know, he's, he's right up there with the, you know, enablers of history <laughs> um, who invited in the extremists, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the reason they're mad at him now is that he, you know, Trump is a very crude individual. And the GOP has had this facade of politeness. Like, so Mike Pence doesn't say much and, you know, it's like uh, tyranny and racism with like gloves on. And Donald Trump comes in and um, reveals the violence uh, and the extremism in a crude and open manner. And so you can see they're already trying to kind of extrude him from the party. And then Pence gave, the, I already was thinking that, and then Pence gave this like whitewashing uh, speech saying, oh, we're, well, we're the only administration. We didn't go to war. We're all about peace. It's like, well, you didn't have an international war, but you had this coup, coup attempt with enormous violence that's never happened. So they need to like kind of, cover it over because Donald Trump, what, what Donald Trump did actually, and, and I added a chapter on corruption to my book, he, he exposed all the, all the, as though we didn't, you know, some people were already very aware of this, but he exposed to a greater degree, the ugliness, the corruption, 
the cheap glamour, the um, propagation of falsehoods, all of the things that are already in our politics and you like soup them up and accelerated them and let the workings be known. So when he said to Leslie Stahl that he wanted to discredit journalists, you know, so that they, nobody would believe them when they talk about it's like corruption. You're not supposed to say those things. You're supposed to do it. That's the McConnell and Pence bill. You, you do it, but you kind of cover it up. And Donald Trump doesn't cover stuff up. And that's why people love him. But the in that, in that sense only was he anti-establishment because the rest of his BS about populism, I mean, who really benefited economically from Trump was agribusiness, mining people, logging people, all the big giant, you know, big pharma. So his populist stuff was just BS. But in this exposing and not caring what people thought, there he was actually um, quite anti-establishment. So people are uh, they everything was fine and then he did the January 6th thing and some of them uh, like the caretakers of the old party are pissed at him hmm. all right well Ruth Ben Giat I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont conversation thank you for having me Ruth Ben Giat is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University she's the author of strong men from Mussolini to the present 